Perception is reality, or so the saying goes. If you have children, you know that this is true. Oftentimes, one of them will look at the other one in a way that is less than pleasing, and they will begin to get in a fight over it. He looked at me wrong. But really, perception frames our reality, doesn't it? You see, the way we perceive things helps us to determine whether or not we might make friends with someone. We might see what they do and see how they act in certain situations and realize, I don't want to be a part of their friendship circle. We might look at others and think the opposite. That is a good, upstanding person. I want to be friends with them. We might have heard the story that's been told by a Walmart executive who is about to appoint a new uh, CEO. And as they're going through the line at the cafeteria, what happens, this man that's on the short list to become the new executive at Walmart takes a one-cent butter and puts it on his tray, doesn't pay for it. He ends up not getting the job offer because he is viewed as someone who doesn't have integrity. And if he can't have integrity in the little things, how can he have integrity in the big things, especially in the corporate finances of an organization such as Walmart? But you see, our perceptions determine what we view and how we view the world around us. We might think about good and bad, right and wrong, what we perceive others to do or accomplish. You see, if we perceive that something is good for us in our lives, then more than likely we will pursue after it because that is beneficial. That is that good part. And if there is that perception of bad, something that will harm our lives, typically, I say typically because we'll talk about that in a moment, typically we will leave it off and we will view it as it really is in truth. But what happens really when we begin to look at good as bad and bad as good? You might think of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 5 and verse 20 where the Bible there says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, when our perceptions begin to reflect that disposition, then something has got to change in our lives. You see, perceptions are good when they are tempered and when they are refined with truth. You might think about Peter in Acts chapter 8 when he looked at Simon the sorcerer and said, I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness. You see, that perception was shown to him and he had that perception based on the actions of Simon at the time. But when our perceptions are tempered with truth, then they can be good. But they're bad when the right or the wrong information is put in and then the right expectation does not come out. You see, what are our views toward good things? What are our views toward righteousness and right living? And then what are our views toward bad things, that is, wickedness and wrong living? Malachi 3 and verse 13, we see this idea of perception getting turned on its head. Where the Bible there says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord of hosts. And the response is, Yet you say, What have we spoken so much against you? You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? He would say, And now we call the proud happy. Yes, those that work wickedness are set up. Yes, those that tempt God are even delivered. And we might see the turning on its head of those right things into wrong things because of their view towards God. Tonight, I want us to look at a few things that are found in the book of Matthew. 
In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, you see, we get the setting here of an individual. The context is also found in Mark and in Luke as well. By the way, this is one of those events that all the synoptic writers record. And it is that issue of the gathering demoniac. What is going on with him? There's a few things that I think we would do well to heed tonight in this context. You see, Jesus the Christ, beginning in verse 28, the Bible there says, And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Are you come here to torment us before the time? So we get the setting. Jesus has just stilled the storm on Galilee. We know that he has accomplished great miracles in the presence of his disciples. Now we see him triumph over the weather. I'm sure we wish we could do that at times. We see him triumph over the weather. We see the response of his disciples. This is unreal. The, the storm is calmed. They get out of the boat on the other side and they are met with the demon-possessed man. By the way, it's really interesting to see how these, this flow of miracles goes. But they're met by this individual who comes out, who's been wandering in the caves, who's out by himself, who definitely has not been taken care of. He's possessed. The other accounts tell us that he was wandering about in the, the tombs at night, in the mountains during the day. We know that he was going all over in those desolate places, trying to find a place to stay. No man could tame him. They couldn't bind him with chains. There was nothing they could do for this individual. And in true form, Jesus the Christ shows up to meet them where they are. You might think about the words of the Christ, or at least the words of the gospel writers regarding the Christ, when they say that he was moved with compassion on the multitudes, for they were as sheep, having no shepherd. But we see the heart of Christ evidenced here as he steps out of the boat and meets this individual. By the way, the destination that we might think about, Gersa, you might look in the back of your Bible maps and it might tell you where the Gergesenes is or where Gadara is. Uh, suffice it to say, we can't pinpoint an exact location as to where this occurred. You might think in all of our advancements in archaeology and our ability to go back and look and find it, we don't really have a solid point of reference. And that might be consistent with the way Providence has so ordered this context here. But... The demons here clearly possessed these two men that are referenced. And at this point, they were a plague to the townspeople and all the folks that were in the area. No one could help them. Have you ever known those folks that are beyond help? They're a lost cause, we might say. Uh, this is the typical example of a lost cause. There was nothing that anyone could do in the city for these men. There is a problem as well with the townspeople in that they are also hog farmers. So you have two men who are demon-possessed in the area of Israel, and then you have two, or at least a city, that is financing or, or uh, engaging in the economy of hog farming. Now, I don't know about you, but I read my Old Testament and realize that the children of Israel weren't allowed to have hogs within their borders. So what's going on here? Well, if this truly is a town of Jews, then they are engaged in an unholy traffic that is in the marketing of hogs, which is wrong. And Jesus is there, as we know, in true form. And every time he comes into the lives of individuals, he seeks to make things right. And we'll see that play out. But the swine may occupy many people on many levels. I know when I was growing up, I thought, well, why is it fair that Jesus got rid of their entire herd of swine? 
You know, I didn't think that that was right. Then I realized that they weren't supposed to have them to begin with. I know when our kids have things that they're not supposed to have, typically they get thrown away or thrown in the garbage can. Uh, if you've been a parent long, that's probably been part of what you'll do. Uh, you're not supposed to have that candy, and it goes straight into the bin. They were doing and practicing things that were not right. And now Jesus shows up on the shore. There's people in real need, real sincere need. And he is there for these two individuals. Jesus arrives on the other side and he's met with these two who are demon-possessed inquiring. Note, by the way, it's interesting. They have the sense of mind to ask Jesus why he is there. Is he there to torment them before the time? Now, notice the demons recognize the Christ for who he is. And in the other accounts, they ask him to leave their presence. Why? Because unholiness cannot stand before holiness and remain. We think about what happens when we respond to the gospel. We put Christ on in baptism and everything that we did before we look at and we revile. We might think about those practices that are accomplished by individuals in life. And we think, how could they practice them knowing that they are wrong? You see, unholiness and holiness cannot stand together in the presence of the Christ they question him, why are you here? And they even testified of the Christ, but he never endorsed their testimony and he never sought it. We move to the solution. The Bible there says, and there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him saying, if you cast us out, allow us to go away into the herd of swine. So as Jesus is conversing with them, we might look at Mark and the account that's given there and what they say. They want Christ to let them stay in the country. They don't want to be driven out of the country. And so as they're having this dialogue, they're making concessions that he is the Christ and in a moment, they fly away or they are cast out. Jesus says, go, because they want to go into a herd of swine. Jesus says, go. They go into that herd. That herd runs down into the sea and kills that stock. What's significant about that? Well, Jesus doesn't debate with them at that point. He allows them to go and in one word cast them out. So we might see the solution that is made for these men. Now, by the way, this is a twofold solution. What is Jesus there to do? He's there to purify and cleanse. And so we have evidence for us in the lives of individuals. The God of heaven so acting as to bring people into a right relationship with him. And does God not act in such a way in our lives to bring us into that right union? But then we have the Christ so ordering affairs that he takes away the implement that separates that group of people from God and from their ability to worship Him. You think about what God does and works in His providence to bring about a right relationship with individuals. I've heard story after story after story of individuals who have been brought so low that the only place they could look is finally toward heaven. I knew a man once who was brought so low he was painting. All he was doing was being a sign painter and he went out and uh, he had left the faith, and he decided that he was going to paint signs. And so him and his brother were out painting signs. And uh, as they were painting signs down in South Texas, they saw the fire truck pass by, and they wondered what all the commotion was about. And they thought, well, the only thing that's that way is our house, which was a rinky-dink old trailer that he was living in. 
And so they made their way back to where they saw all the commotion and realized that their home was on fire and all the valuables that they possessed, everything that he cared about was in that trailer and it was on fire. And so he watched them put it out, walked around, the grass was burning around the house and there was nothing that he could do. Brought him solo. But didn't break yet until he sat down and then he got up to walk and the soles of his boots fell off. See, if you've worn boots, you know that when you put fire on the bottom on that sole, it burns those threads and those threads no longer hold. Well, the fire had burned all the threads off of his last pair of shoes. That's when he broke. What is it that God does in our lives that so orders our steps to come to a right understanding of who he is? Those who seek after him. I'm not talking about those individuals who have dismissed him out of hand and have no desire or care to have a relationship with the God of heaven. We look at these two men here, namely the one that is figured for us in the context in which we are reading about this, this evening. And we see the Christ showing up and ridding him of the demons that have plagued him for so long. We know that uh, Mark's gospel tells us that he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. He was brought to health. He was restored. And that traffic that they were engaging in, that economy of hogs, was gone. And now there was a chance, maybe just an opportunity, that he might be able to restore that group and that city to a right relationship with him as well. We continue in Matthew 8 and verse 32. We see the power. The Bible there tells us, and he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. So the demon-possessed men were healed. The hogs were thrown into the uh, sea at the same time. And here we see the real greatness of the miracle. And that Christ came to set all things right. Then we continue on. Matthew 8 and verse 33. And here's really where I want us to linger tonight. The Bible there tells us, And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. How often have individuals bid the master depart because they know full well that he will demand changes in their life. Note what happens. There are individuals who are watching all of this transpire watching everything that occurred. And they saw what happened to this demon-possessed man. No one could heal him, and now the Christ is here, and he is healed. But their hogs are gone. And notice the order in which the writer tells us he, they go into the city and tell. They tell everything. To them, the everything was the traffic that God had prohibited to them, the everything was what was wrong. The everything was what stood them in opposition to God. Oh, and what had befallen the two men. Almost as an afterthought, the healing of these men is immaterial to them being stood in the way by Christ for what they are doing. Think about that. What is our everything? What is the and? What keeps us from a right relationship with the God of heaven? What do we put in front of God in our lives? Why is it that we implore the Master to leave? 
What if the Christ were to come this very night here? Would he be welcome? Maybe in the congregation? In the city? Where we are? What would be the response of the people? Would they be glad that the Messiah was here? Or would they turn him away because they knew what things needed to be changed in their lives and they weren't willing to change him yet? I had a Bible study with a young lady several years back, and uh, she was in a relationship that wasn't right. And as we began to study the biblical texts and talk about repentance, one of the things kept coming around, and that was that she needed, to make, she needed to make her life right with God and change the relationship that she was currently in. She understood this. There's no ambiguity. But by going over the gospel and what God requires of a righteous life, she knew that she had to make that change. And she said, is there any way that I can continue in this and be right? And I said, absolutely not. I mean, that's what the text tells us. And what broke my heart was she telling me, well, I'm not ready to change. I like the way things are too much right now. How many people do we see living lives that are going to send them to an eternity away from God because they like the way things are right now. And they're unwilling to make those most important changes. You see, many people love sin more than God, and when faced with the dilemma between the two, they will often choose sin over God. They will flatly refuse the blessing of Christ for the allure and temptation of sin and the pleasure they feel it might bring at that time. You see, in the presence of the divine here, these men told the people of what Jesus had done to the swine and not how He had helped the men. Hogs were more important than people. Last time I checked, the Lord came to save souls, not hogs. And the Lord wants souls to be saved and is very unconcerned with the welfare of hogs. You see, when only what had happened to the men was told, it makes them appear as kind of the casualties to the loss of their hog farming then we get the persistence. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw Him, they besought Him that He would depart out of their coasts. What is it that causes people to ask God to leave? Why do people want Christ to leave? See, oftentimes, people want Him to leave because they know that if He's present, changes will have to be made. Why are so many people afraid to obey the Gospel? Because they don't want to change. See, how many don't want the blessing of God and His Christ as well in their life because of what they might have to give up? See, John makes this abundantly clear in 1 John 2 and verse 15. He says, love not the world, neither the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We think about our relationship with God. Are we the ones who are asking Christ to depart? Are we as God's children asking Christ to not make his home with us? Do we take him off the shelf on Sunday and Wednesday night? Do we put on airs? And yet our everything has not really been God in His Christ. It's been those things that satisfy us from the world. 
You see, Jesus can stand there and knock on the door all night long, but eventually that knock will falter and fall silent. Jesus says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any will hear my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You see, we have the opportunity to open the door to the Christ. Here, when we look at this text, Jesus came to set things right in all of his, his life. He was there to set things right, to bring people back to a holy God, to set individuals right in their relationship with Him, and ultimately, to set the people right with Him again as the Christ. Saddest verse is the departure. And He entered into a ship and passed over and came into His own city. The Christ will leave if we don't want Him there. And the blessings that we have in Him can be lost if we so choose to renounce our trust and our confidence and faith in Him. How many people would love to know what we know tonight? The life that we have, the hope of eternity in Him, and the love that is afforded through the body and through one another, the grace that He bestows upon us that we might be called sons or children of God. And yet it is flippantly cast aside. James would tell us in James 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist who? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near unto you. You see, the saddest thing that can be said is that the Christ got into a boat and departed and came into his own city. What does a Christless city look like? A Christless city looks like that city that rejects Jesus the Christ. We might even look around at our country today and see a nation that is slowly but surely rejecting the influence of godliness and morality in our culture, in our lives. And can we become casualties of that? Can our everything overwhelm us so that we forget the most important thing, and that is God? And the relationship that we have with Him. Yes, it is possible. What is our everything tonight? Is our everything truly the God of heaven and right living? Has our perception slipped so that we have lost sight of those most important things? And are we striving daily to live a life that is in accord with what God demands for His children? Or have we focused on the everything too much? And now just the word of the Christ becomes an and, a byword. Where are we tonight? If we realize that we have been living in light of the world's teaching, putting those priorities first, we offer an opportunity to, for you to make those things right tonight with the God of heaven. I know the congregation and the elders are waiting here to pray over you and to restore you and make things right. And if you have not put Christ on in baptism responding to that great gospel call, making Christ your everything for eternity, then we offer you that opportunity tonight as well. If you have any need, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.